Beautiful thing, church. Let's start with a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into our one, two, three, third presentation in the Incomparable series. Today we are at the latter part of Matthew chapter 2, just a little bit on Jesus' uh, time in Nazareth, Nazareth, excuse me, and then we'll spend uh, the balance of our time in Matthew chapter 3. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless us this morning as we turn our attention to you, to the text. You have already ministered to us in so many ways. You've ministered to us through the music and through the children's story. What a great children's story, Father. It was worth it just to see Darnell in that outfit. And we pray now that as, as we turn our attention to Scripture and to the text, that you would fill this, not only this room, but the hearts of the people in this room with your Holy Spirit. Give us an awareness, an awakening. Father, today we turn our attention to John the Baptist, a reformer, calling at a, at a, a crucial, pivotal, and even dreary time in Israel's history with a simple and sincere message. And Father, today, 2016... Uh, we need to hear this simple and sincere message. Today, we need reform and revival. And my prayer, Lord, is that as we engage with the text, that we would engage not just in an academic or an intellectual way, but that your spirit would come and melt and transform and make malleable our hearts. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew. And let's see where we're at. Let's spend just a little bit of time in review. Last Sabbath's sermon was titled, The New Exodus. And today the sermon is titled, God with us and for us. God with us and for us. As we've mentioned before, in, the similar, in a similar vein to the way that we divided the Blazing Grace series up into seven chapters, we have divided the Incomparable series up into seven chapters. Now, I do need to just say a word about the pronunciation of Incomparable. It's the last time I mentioned this, probably. I went to eight online dictionaries that have pronunciation, and this, I did this last Sabbath, and every single online dictionary that I found, including numerous that were British, all pronounced the word, guess how? Incomparable. In other words, the correct way. So, <laughs> so in our Incomparable series, we've divided the series, just like our Blazing Grace, up into seven chapters. And those chapters are Son, which is chapters 1 to 4, Preacher, chapters 5 to 7, Healer, chapters 8 and 9, Leader, chapters 10 to 12, Teacher, chapters 13 to 20, Seer, which is an old word, an old English word for prophet, chapters 21 to 25, and then finally Conqueror, the closing three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So I have the privilege of preaching the first four of those under the subheading of Son, and our very last slide from last week said this. Jesus' birth, as described in Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 1 and 2, his birth and his flight to and calling out from Egypt loudly announces the new exodus has begun and the new Moses is here. That was the title of last week's sermon, The New Exodus. Now we're going to unpack that idea of the new exodus in even greater detail. But before we do that... I want to continue by way of review and then just talk a little bit about the historicity of the Gospel of Matthew, the structure of the Gospel of Matthew, right before we dive directly into the passage under consideration today. First of all, several hallmarks of Matthew's Gospel that we've already noted are, number one, that God is with His people, and we'll see this in greater detail today. Uh, Jesus' frequent use of parables, the idea that Jesus is King. We find that again and again as a consistent theme in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus King of the Jews, 
king of the Jews, and by extension, king of the world. Also, Jesus versus the establishment is a major thematic element in the Gospel of Matthew. Not only the religious establishment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also the political establishment of Herod and, by extension, Caesar, who, who uh, Herod was uh, Caesar's representative. Uh, Jesus and his interaction with Gentiles slash outcasts has been a major theme. That's going to come back up again today in chapter 3. Jesus in the shadow of the cross we looked at last week, especially in the context of the massacre of the infants in Bethlehem when Herod realized that he'd been, uh, 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 that, he, that basically the, the wise men had gone, uh, gone away from him. Uh, number three, Jesus and the new exodus, which we'll pick up in greater detail today. And finally, so far, Jesus and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, we'll come back to that in just a second here. First of all, come with me to Matthew chapter 3, or Matthew chapter 2, and you'll notice that Jesus settles in Nazareth. Matthew chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse um, 23. It says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's the end of chapter 2. Now check this out. The beginning of chapter 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and shortly after this, Adult Jesus is baptized. Okay? So we go from Jesus as infant, Jesus as a refugee, Jesus fleeing from Herod with a price on his head, and then we just have this short little sentence here, the short little verse, oh, they settled in Nazareth, and the next time we see Jesus, he's a grown man. In his mid to late 20s, probably not older than his early 30s, very early 30s. So the idea of, of Jesus' childhood is not something that factors really at all into Matthew's gospel, apart from the elements that we've already talked about, the massacre of the infants and the unique and miraculous nature of his birth. Luke, which we're not studying this uh, through, through at this time, he spends a little bit more time on Jesus' childhood, giving us a single instance of Jesus at the age of 12 going to the temple. John spends no time, and Mark, like Matthew, doesn't either, really. So when we look at the, the whole of the gospel of Jesus, a modern reader might be inclined to think, hey, what about his childhood? What about, what about those intervening decades? You know, 20 years, perhaps 25 years, where Jesus essentially, with, with the exception of that sole instance in Luke, where Jesus at the age of 12 goes to the temple, like, where is Jesus' childhood? It's just a great big, giant uh, vacuum in, right in the middle of, of the New Testament Gospels. And it's a fair question, but it's actually a question that's anachronistic. What I mean by anachronistic is it's a modern question to an ancient reality. In, in, in ancient times, in Jesus' day, biographies that were written, um, celebratory biographies, concentrated very little, in fact, on childhood and generally focused on the point under consideration, the greatness of the general or of the philosopher or the politician or, in this case, of the rabbi Jesus. And I want to just give you a quotation to this effect. Craig Keener, in his conservative commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, says that early Christian traditions should have preserved less of Jesus' early life than of his ministry is not surprising. This is somebody writing from an historical perspective. He says, not surprising at all. Why not, Mr. Keener? For three reasons. Number one, it fits with the primary significance of his ministry to his first followers. The primary significance, of course, of Jesus' ministry to his first followers was not only his sinless life, but especially his death, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection from the dead. In fact, if you want a, an even more extreme case in point, you take the Gospel of John, right? The Gospel of John has, what is it, 20, 
one or 22 chapters. It's escaped me right now. Let me just quickly look that up. Just a few chapters in the Gospel of John. Let me see if I have 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And the circumstances in and around this, this crucifixion of Jesus begins in chapter 12. And just let that settle in. Here's somebody that lives to his late 20s, early 30s. This is the biography of his life. You have 21 chapters. And by the time you get to chapter 12, you're basically concentrating on the last week of his life. Okay? So this is not an even distribution or an even treatment of like an encyclopedic or modern uh, bi- biographical treatment of Jesus. And, and what Keener says here is this. That's the way they did it back then. They basically wrote biographies about the most prominent and significant features of the person's life that was under consideration. But notice number two. This is a major point. Their eyewitness attestation of the ministry as opposed to most of his childhood. This was a major consideration uh, for the church, for Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. In the case of Matthew and John, they were eyewitnesses to a significant part of Jesus' public ministry, but they were not eyewitnesses, presumably, to his childhood. So they couldn't write with authority about those things, but what they did write with authority about was the things that they themselves saw and witnessed and experienced. And then thirdly and finally, standard rhetorical form in, is, is in this, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for here, literary genre, it passes quickly over material less relevant to one's purpose. And uh, that's the reason why when we turn our attention to the Gospel of Matthew, we go from chapter 2, shoo, he's basically settling in Nazareth, that's all we get. Chapter 3, Jesus shows up as an adult, just arrives on the scene as an adult. Now just another word about this. How can we be sure as Christians, how can we be sure about the Bible's authenticity and believability? Why should we put our faith in an ancient document and in the God of an ancient document? This is a fair question that would be leveled at us by many secularists, by many people who are skeptically inclined and who think that the whole thing sounds like a grand fairy tale, okay? So people say, hey, wait, why trust that document? Well, without spending a lot of time, it's diff- very difficult in the time that's allotted to me here to talk about the nature of the historical enterprise. The truth of the matter is, is that more than, once you get more than a single generation removed from any historical event, we have to go on the authority and the, the record of people that saw it. Okay? So you take, for example, the American Civil War. There is nobody that's alive today that was alive during the American Civil War. right? But, but no historian would seriously doubt the events that we take uh, as part of of the American Civil War or or any other event of history, provided it's more than a generation removed from somebody alive. So the way that we prove things or know things from history is not at all the way that we prove or know things, say, for example, in physics or chemistry or math, right? Historical proof looks very different than mathematic proof. Historical proof looks very different than proof in other realms of science. Historical proof is established on what's called the criteria of authenticity. Criteria of... How would we know that this record, this report of some event that happened a century ago or a millennia ago, how would we know that this is legitimate, this is viable, and this is questionable or suspicious? How would we go about doing that? Well, philosophers of history and historians themselves use a number of criteria to establish historical authenticity. How do we know, how do we separate between the wheat and the chaff 
of history. And I'm going to give you just a few of them here because one of them has already come up several times in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it's a little bit difficult to see that. Hopefully, when we get new projection, it'll be easier to see. But the criteria of authenticity covers at least five domains, okay? The first is the criterion of dissimilarity. Dissimilarity, which, happily enough, is exactly what we have in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are similar enough that they're clearly telling the same story, but they are dissimilar enough to rule out collusion, right? You know, collusion, where everybody got together and, hey, you say this and I'll say this, and the stories are absolutely identical. So one of the things that historians look for, if everything, yep, 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 and it's all written the same way in exactly the same verbiage, etc., they say, ah, that looks suspicious, But when we encounter dissimilarity in multiple historical accounts, which we'll get to here in just a second, historians say, that sounds right. That sounds, the the, the principle of dissimilarity is very similar to what you might have if you were a police officer, say, investigating a car accident. And you say, okay, what happened? And you go to witness A, and they say, well, this is what happened. You go to witness B, this is what happened. You go to witness C, this is what happened. Well, witness A was in the car. Witness B was standing on an overpass, a bridge, looking down at the accident, and witness C was on the other side of the street. As you put the reports together, there are points at which those reports might seem conflicting. But in fact, they're not conflicting. It's just, hey, look, an accident is going to look very different when you're sitting in the car versus when you're looking down on it versus when you're looking across traffic at it. And this is what we get, for example, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get enough similarity to note, yep, these guys are talking about the same person. There's enough consistency and corroboration there that it, yep, that passes the test of dissimilarity, but they're not identical. That's number one. Number two is language and environment. When historians take a look at uh, things that are supposedly historical, if you have a very modern word that suddenly shows up in a so-called ancient document, that's an immediate tip-off to historians saying, no, 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 no. That word was not used in that way or maybe wasn't used at all in that century or at that time. So a lot of times when people are redacting or, or rewriting history, they unwittingly write modern telltale signs, whether in the use of language or in certain idioms, back into their supposedly historical documents. Wonderfully enough, when we look at the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in particular for our purposes here, this series, Matthew, the language of Matthew is, is saturated in first century Jewish culture and language and situation. In other words, when we read that, we're like, yep, all the extra biblical confirmations that we have about what the, the world looked like in and, around, uh, Israel, in and around this period of the world at this period of time, it's like Matthew's right on, right on when it comes to language and environment. The third one is coherence, that basically the story coheres, that it's logical, that it's internally consistent. Cohere means to stick together. The fourth principle of, of authenticity is multiple attestation. And that's just exactly what it sounds like. If, if you go back to the car accident analogy, if only one person saw it, it can be questionable whether or not it happened as was reported. But when you have two, three, four, five, six, the more people that you have that saw an event, if the event that they describe is similar enough to be reconciled, the reports are similar enough to be reconciled, that's what's called multiple attestation. Okay, and this is what we have a significant amount of, and this is key, not only in the, the four-part Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we actually have extra-biblical attestation of Jesus, significant extra-biblical attestation of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus that were not written in, by biblical writers. 
And maybe at some time in the future we'll have the opportunity to share some of those historical, extra-biblical sources that give us yet further corroboration through this multiple attestation criterion that, hey, wait a minute, that, that passes the smell test. And then the fifth one, and the one that I think is most interesting and the one that really intersects with what we've learned so far up to this point uh, in, in our study of Matthew is what's called the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment. What, what might that mean? Well, when historians take a look at records that are ostensibly historical or supposedly ancient, one of the things they look at is they look for what's called legendary embellishment. Legendary embellishment is, is basically what you do when you remember how good you used to be at rugby or cricket, right? You, it's like the t-shirt I saw one time, or surfing. The t-shirt that I saw said, the older I get, the better I was, Right? That's called legendary embellishment. And when you pass on your exploits as a cricketer or your exploits as a rugby player or your exploits as a surfer to your children, you are almost certainly exaggerating. Right? And then when your children pass on your exploits to their children, they will probably exaggerate still further. And this is what's called legendary embellishment. And before you know it, everybody in your family and your lineage ends up looking like heroes on the sporting field. You all could have been all blacks. You all could have been wallabies. You all could, every, you, know, you could have been if you just hadn't injured you or whatever it might have been. Okay, but when you have things that are recorded in historical documents that are frankly embarrassing, historians look at that and say, that's probably true. That has not been redacted or reconstructed to make the protagonist in the story look really good. So when you find these points of potential uh, cultural embarrassment, so-called embarrassment, historians say, yeah, that sounds probably right. That probably is true because who would invent that? Why would they invent a story about that particular point of embarrassment? And we've already encountered a number of these in the Gospel of Matthew. If you could bring those lights down just a little bit, Matt, that'd be great. Okay, here's just a few of them very quickly. First of all, as we've already mentioned, the inclusion of Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, that is not something that first century Jewish writers would have invented to make the story of Jesus seem more legitimate. If anything, that draws the historicity of Jesus and the legitimacy of Jesus tied to Abraham and David, it calls it into question. So a historian will look at that and say, hmm, that's not the kind of thing you would have invented. That's probably accurate. Okay, number two, Mary's divine conception. Now, this is a really tricky one because... This is actually a fairly saturative pagan idea, the idea of divine impregnation or of the gods having children. And this is one of the critiques that's been leveled against Christianity by skeptically inclined people. Oh, this is just one of many stories in ancient history about a god, you know, and a baby that comes through a woman because of divine impregnation, right? Now, here's the interesting thing. The disciples, the, the New Testament writers, would have certainly known that this was a potentially risky claim because it was something that was not uncommon in the surrounding pagan cultures. So the fact that they would record this strongly suggests that that's actually the way it was rather than making some story up that would have sounded more Jewish and less pagan. It was a point of potential embarrassment. Number three is the dubious slash miraculous nature of Jesus' birth. As we mentioned last week, the primary reason, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, that the virginity of Mary is, is referenced again and again is not to make virginity as some standard. We've already noted that God's ideal for human sexuality is not abstinence. It's a monogamous, lifelong sexual union between men and women. Well, why the virginity then? Why is it recorded? What's the point? 
And we, we noted this last Sabbath. The reason is to set the record straight with regards to the seemingly dubious nature of Jesus' birth. We went to John chapter 8 when we see the, saw the religious leaders saying to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, we were not born of fornication. The, the, the implication here is as plain as can be. You were. You were. And the fact that the gospel writers would stick to their guns and they would insist, Nope, he was born of a virgin... That would be a point of potential inconsistent, a, a point of potential embarrassment, and a point of potential loss of credibility. Okay, number four, Jesus' reception first by foreigners. If you're writing a Jewish story to Jewish people, and, and the story basically makes the foreigners out to be the hero of chapters one and two, that's not that's potentially embarrassing to your own people, to your own culture. It wasn't the religious establishment. It wasn't the Jews that was ready to receive their own Messiah. It was foreigners from the east. That's a point of potential embarrassment. But it gets even worse. They were not just any ordinary foreigners. They were astrologers. And astrology was something that was regarded uh, very, uh, with great suspicion in the Jewish culture. Astrology and, and all of the sort of mysticism that surrounded that is something that Jews were forbidden to have anything to do with and stayed at arm's length from. So why would you invent a story about pagan astrologers coming to recognize the legitimacy of Jesus' messiahship? A historian says you wouldn't. You wouldn't make that up. If you were going to make up a story that sounded believable, that sounded sustainable, you wouldn't include that detail. Two more quickly. Jesus' rather obscure hometown. We just read that Jesus grew up in, what was the name of that town? The town of Nazareth. You want to take a guess as to how many people were probably in and around Nazareth at the time of Jesus? How big of a town it was? Could have been as few as 500 people. As few as 500 people and not more than about fifteen or 1,600. Small town. If you're going to invent a Messiah figure, a big figure who's going to come in, change the world, the new Moses, the new king, you don't have him coming out of Nazareth. Okay? He's not coming from there. He's not coming out of some seemingly insignificant and you know, backwater little town in ancient Palestine. And then finally, Jesus' baptism by John, which we'll get to in just a moment. Jesus' baptism by John. John is admittedly a lesser. In fact, John actually protests. Hey, look, you should be baptizing me. The fact that in, in Jesus' culture, and this isn't as much for us, but in Jesus' culture, the idea of, of prestige and of honor and of hierarchy was very important. So the idea that Jesus would have submitted to be baptized by somebody that was less than him would have been a point of potential embarrassment for the early church. So when historians look at these kinds of points, and there are many more, by the way. This is just what we've gotten to up to this point. When historians look at that, they think, man, that has the ring of truth. That sounds like that's probably what actually happened. Now, notice again Matthew chapter 2 in verse 23. Let's get now right into the text itself. And you'll notice that in verse 23, we read the words that it might be fulfilled. Note what's on the screen here. Fulfill or fulfilled is already, it's already clear that this is Matthew's favorite word in his gospel. Let me just read you a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the Lord, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Chapter 2, verse 15. And they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Chapter 2, verse 17. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Chapter 2, verse 23. 
And he came and dwelt in a city, we've already read this, of Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled. Fulfilled. Chapter 3, verse 13. When, Jesus pro- when John protests about Jesus baptizing him, Jesus says, no, the, permit it to be so for now, because thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 12, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 5, verse 17, don't think that I come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. Continuing on, chapter 8, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. Racing forward to chapter 13, verse 14, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And we could go on and on all the way right up through chapter 26. You see, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus, he's telling a very specific story. As we've already noted from right at the outset in chapter 1, the first words of Matthew chapter 1 are Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For Matthew, the story of Jesus is not some like, ta-da, Jesus is the rabbit that's pulled out of the hat with no backstory, with, with, no, with no preamble that leads to this point. For Matthew, he spent that that first part of the genealogy there, we've already been over this, talking about from Abraham to David was 14 generations, David to the captivity was 14 generations, and the captivity to the Christ was 14 generations. For Matthew, you cannot tell the story of Jesus without telling the backstory. The backstory has to be told again and again and again. And in, in the opening chapters of Matthew, what Matthew does is he takes a scripture, he plugs it into a major episode of Jesus' life, and he says, this happened that it might be fulfilled by Micah. Then he takes another scripture and he plugs it into this episode of Jesus' life, and he says, this happened that it might be fulfilled what the prophet Hosea said. Another episode plugs in a passage of scripture and says, this happened so that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah. As Matthew goes back as a Jew and reads his own ancestral writings. As Matthew goes back and reads what you and I refer to, um, unfortunately, as the Old Testament, Matthew is now reading his own book, his own traditions, his own ancestry. He's reading his own history, and he's saying, Man, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. In fact, Matthew gets fairly creative with some of the things that he says were fulfilled in Jesus. As we noted last week, the particular prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin shall give birth, that was not a general messianic expectation. This, this was not like an, something that Jews are like, yeah, we're just looking for the child to be born of a virgin. There was no Jewish expectation that, a child would be, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew knew the story. He knew the story of Mary's having not been with Joseph, and it appears that Matthew went back looking for an Old Testament justification for what he knew was the actual story. Matthew is putting on, as it were, a new pair of glasses, and as he goes back, he's reading the, new te- the Old Testament with new eyes. He's like, whoa, that was fulfilled in Jesus, straight out of Micah. Whoa, that was fulfilled in Jesus, straight out of Isaiah. Whoa, when in Jeremiah it says that Rachel was weeping for her children and could not be comforted. Well, that was fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. And here's the point. For Matthew, you cannot tell the story of Jesus if you don't know the backstory. Another way to say that is you cannot make sense of the New Testament without the Old Testament. And there are a great many wonderful, sincere, beautiful Christian people who are, they think of themselves or they might even refer to themselves as New Testament Christians. I want to tell you, beloved, this is a funny thing. The first century Christians, the New Testament Christians were Old Testament Christians. 
The first Christians that there ever were were Old Testament Christians, right? Paul himself, when he would sit down to read and look for the gospel, when he would sit down to read and look for righteousness by faith, when he would sit down to read and prepare his sermons, he wasn't reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was reading the Old Testament. He was reading Isaiah. He was reading Genesis. He was reading the Psalms. And so this ridiculous and unbiblical notion that I am a New Testament Christian and that Old Testament... Now, Jesus is the beautiful vase, the flower that comes out of the beautiful vase that sits on the table that is the Old Testament. If you don't have the Old Testament, there's no stability, there's no solidity, there's no place to put Jesus. And where Matthew puts Jesus is right at the heart in fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, here's where things really start to heat up. We encounter a guy named John. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is moving through his gospel, as we noted already, quite rapidly. He's getting to the point, right? He's not spending time on what he might have regarded as, as, as unnecessary details. Not that the childhood of Jesus was unimportant, but that's not the story he's telling here. He's telling a story about how Jesus in his public ministry, Jesus in his miracles, Jesus in his parables, Jesus in his teaching and preaching fulfilled the Old Testament expectation of the Jewish Messiah. That's the story that he's telling. And in order to tell that story, he has to go to the forerunner of the Messiah, and he starts telling about a guy named John. Now, let's just learn a little bit, little bit about this John guy. Verse 1 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, first word out of John's mouth, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Note a second use of that phrase already. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. The first thing I want to note is interesting. John does not give us any physical description of Jesus. It's a very interesting point. I cannot find in the Gospel of John any physical description of Jesus or of the clothes he wears or that kind of a thing. But when John's introduced to us, he's introduced as what he wore, the, even the kind of belt that he wore, and the way that he ate, and, and how he conducted himself. It's very interesting. Just as a little parenthetical statement, you may or may not be interested, but I'm going to tell you anyway. This is the reason that I personally do not watch movies of Jesus. No movies, even if they're supposedly good. Young Messiah, uh, Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, The Gospel of John. I just don't do that. Not because I think it's immoral. I want to be clear about that. But for me, I've spent enough time in Scripture. I just recently had, as you know, the 20th anniversary of my conversion to Christ. I've spent enough time in Scripture in those quiet moments. The Lord woke me up one day this week at 3 o'clock, five hours in Bible study, which is unusual, but that was great. In those moments, God by His Spirit has already impressed upon me what Jesus looks like, how He conducts Himself, how He acts, how He speaks, how He interacts with other people. And I'm nervous that if I see some Hollywood director or some, some actor's portrayal, that I might actually lose what the Spirit has given me in those quiet moments. And before you know it, my picture of Jesus that the Spirit has impressed me has been co-opted by Mel Gibson's picture of Jesus, and I don't want that. I want the Spirit's picture of Jesus, and I love the fact that in the Gospels, we're not told much about Jesus' appearance. We're not told, hey, this is what he looked like, and this is how tall he was, and these are the things that he did. No, no, no. We're just, we're just told about the things that Jesus did, the way that he interacted. When John the Baptist shows up, this guy is a model. His life is described as a model of simplicity and sincerity. 
right? He dresses simple. Camels, camels were ubiquitous in, in the, the first century in, the, in this world, in this time. So the cheapest and most uh, easily accessible garments that you could get, the garments that the poor wore were made of camel's hair, right? He, he, he doesn't have access to the luxurious foods that others had. He, he ate locusts. Some say that it was actually the locust bean, which is like a carob pod. But he, he had simple food, simple honey, and he lived in a simple place. His life was a model of sincerity and simplicity. That's John the Baptist. That's the John that we're introduced to. And not only that, his message is simple. Repent. That's the message. Repent. Now, we won't often do this, but occasionally, very occasionally, we'll sneak over into one of the other Gospels just to elucidate a point. And this is one that I do want to elucidate because Matthew doesn't highlight this, but Luke does. Speaking of John the Baptist, it says, the angel speaking to Zechariah says, he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I love the idea here that in keeping with the ancient practice, the Old Testament practice of a prophet being sanctified, a prophet being set aside for holiness, that part of that being set aside for holiness was an uh, abstinence from strong drink and wine. Because, of course, as you know, that could cloud the uh, uh, thinking of the, the person that's been sanctified and set aside, could lead them to make mistakes. And so there was this, nope. And when the, when, the, when the angel appears to Zacharias and said, this child will be an abstainer, no alcohol for this child. I, I love that, and I love the idea that it says, instead of alcohol, this child will be filled with the Spirit. This is actually a point that Scripture makes a number of times, believe it or not, the contrast between alcohol and the Spirit. Look at this one. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Don't destroy yourself by getting drunk, but let the Spirit fill your life. So, so rather than alcohol, which fascinatingly, liquor is referred to as what? Spirits. That's a very interesting thing. I actually did some research on why that is, and there seems to be no consensus about why spirits are called spirit spirits but one of the best explanations seems to be the most obvious and that is that people act in ways that are not native to their personality when you put them on an inebriating substance and uh it's very interesting it says john the baptist no alcohol but be filled with the spirit paul here says don't destroy yourself by getting drunk but rather be filled with the spirit i love the way that philip says this same verse here Don't get your stimulus from wine, for there is always the danger of excessive drinking. But let the Spirit stimulate your souls. There's this idea that, hey, if something's going to stimulate you, and you might remember on the day of Pentecost, when the people were preaching on the day of Pentecost in tongues, does anybody remember what the objection was from the people that first heard the preaching of the uh, the, 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 the disciples on the day of Pentecost? What was it? These guys are drunk. And, and here's this very fascinating little closely tied biblical juxtaposition. No, they weren't drunk. They were filled with the Spirit. So I love this idea that John the Baptist would be filled with the Spirit and he would not be a drinker. Now, just about a year ago, I spent just a little bit of time talking about alcohol in a sermon on Samson on this very point, in fact. And tragically, terribly, something went wrong with the video and, and that wasn't recorded, which I was really gutted about because I, I think that... There were a number of things that I said in that sermon that I really wished would have been recorded. So I want to just take a moment here so that we have a a record of it. And just as I said last week, I'll never miss the chance to quote Desire of Ages, page 638. As a minister, that's a big one for me. As a minister, another big one for me. I'm a a straight-edge punk rocker. That's how I became a Seventh-day Adventist. If that means anything to you, you know what I'm talking about. Straight-edge punk rock kid means no drinking, no drugs, none of that. 
And so I do not miss a textual opportunity to blast alcohol and the drinking of it. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of that this morning. Very quickly, alcohol at a glance. First of all, nobody can deny this. I defy anybody to deny that the world would be a better place without alcohol. This is not, it's not even up for debate. The world would be an infinitely better place without alcohol. Number two, alcohol is unnecessary and nutritionless. It does nothing for you. Don't, there's no nutrition that you get from alcohol. It's not necessary for your basic sustenance in life. Alcohol is highly addictive and destructive. These are reasons that you should be filled with the Spirit and not with alcohol. It is a social and a psychological crutch. People say, oh, I drink alcohol because it puts me at ease. I drink alcohol because it calms my nerves. I drink alcohol because it makes me feel more comfortable in social situations. Okay, that's what's called a crutch. It is very interesting to me that many of the people in the skeptical and secular world that would accuse religionists of having a crutch in religion have their own chemical crutch that makes them feel more lubricated in social situations, a little more comfortable, a little more at ease. A few more here. Alcohol is a damaging depressant. doesn't destroy brain cells, but it certainly destroys their functionality, their ability to function. Uh, it alters judgment and not for the better, right? It lowers healthy inhibitions. There are situations that happen that would not happen in the absence of alcohol, okay? Talking about particularly situations between men and women. It lowers your inhibitions. It basically makes you stupid. Contributes massively to disease, alcohol does for a variety of reasons. Alcohol contributes massively to poverty. Alcohol leads to violence and to general idiocy. It leads to affairs, to abortions, to fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, which, which strikes thousands of children a year. Drunk drivers kill thousands yearly. Almost 11,000 people in the United States alone are killed by drunk drivers. That's just in the U.S. 11,000 a year, completely needless. If alcohol didn't exist, those people would still be alive. Two of my closest friends in the world were killed by a drunk driver when I was a, young, when I was a teenager, in my late teens. Alcohol companies prey on the poor. It is a known fact that alcohol companies advertise, they, they target their advertisements, particular advertisements toward the poor and um, middle and lower middle income um, peoples. Companies prey on addiction, right? It's a company that's profiting off of addiction. It leads to destruction and to uh, all the things that we've been talking about. These companies do not deserve your money and there is no good reason to drink alcohol. There's not one. And so I am thrilled as a, as a Seventh-day Adventist to be a member of a church that takes a strong biblical stand on the consumption of alcohol. The only biblically defensible stance. Now you're going to say, oh, Jesus, they're wine and all of this. You come talk to me about that. I'm talking about in a modern context. Not in an ancient context where you put grape juice in the stomach of an animal and you shook it up and it began to ferment immediately. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world where you walk into the grocery store and you go right to the grape juice and left to the wine. Right? We have plastic and glass and vacuum sealing now so you know that's the alcohol and that's the non-alcohol. There is no biblical defense to take a left when you can take a right. Okay? You don't live in Abraham's day. You don't live in Jesus' day. You're not... Uh, reconstituting juice and sticking it in the stomach of an animal. That's not your world. Your world is you're buying your juice in plastic or in glass if you're buying it at all, and there is no good reason to buy the stuff that has been purposefully fermented. There is no textual reason to drink alcohol. There's no physiological reason. There's no economic reason. There's no nutritional reason. There's no social reason. So I want to appeal to you, if this is a struggle for you at all, don't even consider it. Half tempted to get Cliffua up here one Sabbath and tell us 
about all of the stories that he could tell us probably make the hair stand up on the back of our necks. He's somebody that's been involved in alcohol and drug-related education for most, much of his life. Now, when John the Baptist gave his message, not only did he live a life of rebuke to the prevailing culture of the day in terms of simplicity in dress, simplicity in diet, simplicity in where he lived, and simplicity in, in his message... His message was so simple it could be summarized in a single word, and the word in the English is repent. But the word just means turn. That's all the word means, turn. Turn around. Stop doing that. And as you notice the text, repentance comes up again and again. Look at verse, we've already read down to verse 6. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, the religious establishment, to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers! Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Jump down to verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. John's message was was distilled down to a single idea, a single concept, and that was turn, turn, turn. And John the Baptist knew good and well what he was doing. He came from the wilderness He dressed in the way that the old prophets dressed. He spoke in the way that the old prophets spoke. In fact, there's reason to believe that John applied the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 to himself. A voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. There's there's reason to believe in the gospel of John that, that, that John used that language for himself, that he understood there was some divine sense in which he was calling Israel to turn, to turn, to turn. Well, just as as. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, John is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, we'll pick this up next week, Jesus takes the baton from, from John's hand and Jesus' words are exactly the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn, 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 turn. The message was simple and beautiful. It was a message of repentance. Now, my slide just decided to not turn there, so I'm going to see it. There we go. Notice what John says here. This is very interesting. He says, do not think, when he was speaking to the Pharisees and the uh, Sadducees, do not think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, Abraham shows up again. Abraham shows up in the first verse of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He shows up now a second time, and he shows up in a most interesting way. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What an interesting thing. The reference here to Abraham is very pointed and very particular. It's very intentional. The reference to Abraham is yet another marker of Matthew's emphasis on Gentiles and mission. You say, how so? By the way, we've been seeing it all throughout. Four women in Jesus' genealogy, Gentiles. The wise men come from the east, Gentiles. We've seen it again and again. We're going to see it throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But what does Jesus say here about a lineal or a genealogical relationship to to Abraham? What does Matthew say about it? Or what does uh, John say about it? What he says is, it doesn't matter. When he says that God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones, he's basically sticking it to people who had become comfortable in their religiosity, who had some, what they thought was an ace up their sleeve that would get them through the, 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 the difficulties of life, that would, that would buoy them through any religious doubt that they might be inclined to have. No, 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 no. I am a descendant of Abraham. I love what F.F. Bruce says here about this. The great classic scholar, the late F.F. Bruce, says, if John's baptism was an extension of the proselyte baptism to the chosen people, 
then his baptism, like his preaching, meant that even the descendants of Abraham must enter by repentance and baptism, just like the Gentiles had to do. Now, when you read that phrase up there, proselyte baptism, what proselyte baptism was, if you wanted to become a Jew and you were a Gentile, you were baptized. Okay? So to become a Jew, you, if you were a Gentile, you went through this baptismal process that wasn't identical to John's baptism, but it was similar enough that it seems that this is the thing that John might have been grabbing onto and saying, and this is the key, even Israel needs to be baptized. Now, the implication is amazing, and N.T. Wright teases this implication out in his, um, or Keener uh, uh, teases this out in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisaic opponents who came to oppose John, or at least to observe John, the Pharisaic opponents, for all their claims to represent the truest form of Judaism, were actually spiritual Gentiles. That's the point that John is making here. When John says, you brood of vipers, you evildoers, this is an unambiguous satanic reference. Serpents. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You too need to be baptized. Beloved, this is first century dynamite. The idea that a first century Jew, first of all, much less a religious leader, second of all, would need to be baptized, something that was reserved for Gentile proselytes who were becoming members of the true community of faith, this is absurd. This, this is radical. This is crazy, wild, zany stuff. And I love what I read in one commentary this week. It said that when John the Baptist preached to the religious leaders of his day, he savaged their sense of security. What a great way to say it. When John the Baptist stood up, he was not there to placate religionists. He wasn't up there to tell everybody in the church that everything's going to be fine. After all, you're God's people, you're God's chosen people, everything's going to be great. When John the Baptist stands up, his message is, turn, turn, turn. The translation of which is unmissable. You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. Turn, 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 turn. And he savages their security. People who are absolutely confident in their security, confident in their standing, confident in their position before God, savaged by John the Baptist's piercing, penetrating preaching. And I want to say this to the church today. Sometimes we need to have our security savaged because security can lead to complacency and self-deception. Oh, I tell you, I have met many a Seventh-day Adventist that is just sure that they're a member of God's remnant, just sure that they're a member of God's community, just sure that they're on the fast track to heaven. And I sit down with some of these people and I think, you don't even know your Bible. When was the last time you had devotions? When was the last time you did anything service-oriented, ministry-oriented? Let me see your checkbook. How do you spend your money? The fact that you are a Seventh-day Adventist is basically perfectly irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Being a Seventh-day Adventist was like being a Jew in the first century. It may or may not be significant. It's significant if you're living it. It's significant if you believe it. It's significant if it's saturated who and what you are. But simply to have a complacency and a sense of self-satisfaction that you keep the Sabbath, i.e. you go take a nap on Saturday afternoon, that you're one of God's people, no way, John the Baptist would have said. He would have said, turn, 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 turn. And I love the fact that John the Baptist's life was a rebuke the, the, the way that he ate was a rebuke. The way that he didn't drink was a rebuke. The way that he dressed was a rebuke. The way that he spoke was a rebuke. The place that he lived was a rebuke. Sometimes you have to have a prophet that goes a little overboard just to pull people back to some semblance of normalcy because Israel had gone so far off the rails. They were so 
coddled in their ancestral self-assurance that John the Baptist had to go way over here and you find him saying, oh, don't talk to me about Abraham. Abraham? Abraham? God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What John the Baptist effectively does is exactly what the prophet said he would do. He'll level the playing field. He'll bring the low high and the high low. And he essentially says, Gentiles and Jews and you religious leaders alike... All of you need to come with a new heart, with a freshness. You need to go through the water. You need to be baptizo. You need to be washed. Man. All right, now let me just wrap this up with the new exodus, this final point here, and I think you're going to love this. The new exodus, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we've already seen that Matthew has set us up to expect something great by the mentioning of three groups of 14 generations. This, this attests to, it announces Sabbath and it anticipates the Jubilee. So we already have the expectation that something new is beginning. And that's what the Exodus was. They were in slavery and now it was a new reality, a new nation, a new law, a new opportunity, a new vocation. So we're already primed for that. Just as in, go back and read Exodus chapter 2, the book of Exodus. There's the birth of a special child. It says he was a beautiful child. Well, look at Matthew, the birth of a special child. In the the story of the Exodus, we have the Pharaoh who's slaughtering infants. In the story of Jesus, we have the Herod who's slaughtering infants. Herod becomes the New Testament Pharaoh, as we mentioned here, the systematic death of infants. But it gets even more amazing. Right in Matthew chapter 3, it says in... um, uh, Looking for the verse here, the one who will shepherd... It's not a Matthew chapter 3. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Quoting from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, A ruler to shepherd my people. Well, Moses was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. The next one, the flight to Egypt, which we've already mentioned, just as Israel went, the, the children of Israel, because of Joseph, went into Egypt for a time for safety, incidentally. We'll talk about this more next week. It's because Joseph had dreams. And here we have a New Testament, Joseph having dreams that leads the new Israel, into, into Egypt. He's then called out of Egypt, and here's the punch in the mouth. This is absolutely amazing. That in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Matthew has the audacity, the audacity to say to Jews that the prophecy of Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, was about Jesus. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And Matthew, go back and read it. That is, that is not about Jesus in, in Hosea. It's about Israel. But Matthew, reading the Old Testament with his new glasses, his Jesus glasses, he goes back in, he takes this situation from the experience of of Jesus, he lifts it and he sticks it in the New Testament and he says, that's because of Jesus. And here's a key point. Out of Egypt I have called my son. My son. We'll come back to that in just a second. If you read the story of Moses, there was a very brief and a similar emphasis on his childhood. Right? A beautiful baby being born... Slaughter of the, uh, the infants, very similar to Jesus' story in Matthew. He's telling a story very much like the Moses story. Both Jesus and Moses dwell for, at length in obscurity, right? Moses disappears for a lengthy period into Midian. Like Matthew, uh, Exodus chapter 1, you have the birth of Moses. Then you have him basically punching out the Egyptian. Then getting told off by the, the Jews. He flees and he's gone. Just disappears. Very similar to the Gospel of Matthew. We see him settling in Nazareth, and then he's just gone. He's in obscurity for decades. Then he shows up. Very similar. The wilderness emphasis. When John the Baptist began preaching in the wilderness, he knew good and well what he was doing. 
He was making an emphasis very likely on Isaiah chapter 40. In the wilderness, a voice was heard crying, make straight the path for the king. This idea of passing through water to new life, which we're going to see. John the Baptist is taking people and he's bringing them through the new Red Sea. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea and came out into new life, as they left Egypt, they came into new life, John the Baptist is putting people into water and they're coming out to new life. Putting people into water, coming out to new life. He's, they're passing through the Red Sea in the wilderness. Jesus insists on being baptized at the end of Matthew chapter 3. This is where he approaches John. Let's read this. Verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. And he said, hey, hey, what are you doing? I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. This is key. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, we've already spoken about that, all righteousness. Something has to be fulfilled. I am reenacting the very plan of God in the Exodus. We have to do this. I, too, have to go through the Red Sea experience. All right. Temptation in the wilderness. Just as in Israel, you might recall, when Israel went into the wilderness, they were bitten and tempted by serpents. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, that we'll get to next week, goes into the wilderness where he is tempted and, uh, 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 where he is tempted, and attempted to be uh, bitten by a serpent. And then finally, uh, this leads to Mount Sinai. When Israel comes out of Exodus, passes through the Red Sea, back into the wilderness, they come to Mount Sinai. Guess where Jesus is going to end up in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7? He's going to end up at the New Testament Sinai, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is going to be the lawgiver standing atop the New Testament Sinai and giving the law. Now, we're going to talk more about this recapitulation next week. The point here, beloved, is not just the new exodus. That's not the only point. The point is Jesus' total identification with Israel and thus with humanity. Jesus identifies. He's already been a refugee with a price on his head. He's already uh, attempted to be murdered. And now when he comes, he comes into the water. Jesus has no need to be baptized. Jesus has not sinned. He doesn't need to turn, turn, turn. Which raises the question, why was Jesus baptized? And there are at least two answers. The first is, is that baptism anticipates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, announces that he will go through the experience that all that will put their faith in him will have to go through. That's number one. And number two, because he is reenacting the very history of Israel that he came to embody. N.T. Wright in his Matthew for Everyone says, Jesus comes and stands humbly before John asking for baptism, sharing the penitential mood of the rest of Judea, Jerusalem, and Galilee. I love that. Jesus enters into the mood of Israel. He enters in to... When John's making the call and he's preaching his piercing, penetrative uh, uh, preaching there on the banks of the River Jordan, Jesus enters into that experience. He could have stood. He had every psychological and spiritual reason to stand aloof from John's preaching and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to me. But Jesus enters into the penitential mood of the times in which he found himself. And I love this. A Jesus who seems to be identifying himself, not with a God who sweeps all before him in judgment. No, 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 no. That's not who Jesus is identifying with. Not at this point. Jesus is identifying with the people who are themselves facing that judgment and who need to repent. Truly then, he is God with us and God for us. 
God on our side, God looking out for us, God in the trenches with us, God coming down beside us. He is our king. He is our Moses. He is our savior. And there is no good reason not to follow Jesus. There is no good reason not to follow Jesus. He is the new Moses. He is the true king. He does not merely stand aloof from your situation and call you to higher ground. Jesus comes into the waters, waters where he doesn't belong. Those are not his waters. The waters of repentance are not the waters of Jesus. Waters of turning from sin and hypocrisy are not the waters of Jesus. Which raises the question, what is Jesus doing in the muddy waters of the River Jordan? The answer is, he is there with you, passing through your experience, reenacting not only the history of Israel, but reenacting your history. This is not a God who's over there. This is a God who is right here. Right here. With you, but not just with you in in the companion sense only. He is for you in the advocate sense. He is pulling for you. So today I want to encourage you to hear two things. I want you to hear the preaching of John the Baptist. Because some of us need to have our security savaged. Some of us need to have our security savaged. Whether it's our financial security savaged. We need to have our marital security savaged. We need to have our health savaged. Some of us are in situations where the thing that is working against us the most is our own comfort, our own security, and our own complacency. And John the Baptist knew that good and well. He stood on the banks of the Jordan and he said, you people are on the fast track to hell. You need to turn. You need to turn. You need to turn. You need to turn. And I'm not by in any way suggesting here that everybody in this church is on the fast track to hell. I don't believe that for a moment. But I do know that all of us, the pastor included, probably have areas, I can speak probably for you, I can speak definitively for me, have areas in my life where I need to have my security savaged by straight preaching, by penetrating preaching. I need to have my heart broken. I need to be reminded again and again that I have nothing to bring to God that recommends me to Him, that I cannot trust in anything except God and His goodness. That's the first thing I want you to hear today is the penetrating, piercing preaching of a reformer. Some of you need reform. You need reform. You need financial reform. You need health reform. You need vocational reform. You need lifestyle reform. You need work reform. Some of you need reform and you need it. And you think some special moment's going to happen and all of a sudden everything's going to turn out. Not going to happen. You will make the choice to hear the word turn, 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 turn. As we've been learning in our youth Sabbath school, and I think all of my young people would support me in this, God will not turn the wheel for you. He'll call you to turn. He'll woo you to turn. He'll invite you to turn. He will plead with you to turn. But at the end of the day, beloved, you need to turn. There's areas in my life that I need to turn. There are areas in my life that I need to have my security savaged. And I am highly suspicious that there are areas in your life that you need to turn. You need to have your security savaged. And you need to get back on track. That's the first thing I want you to hear is the penetrating, piercing preaching of John the Baptist. The second thing I want you to hear is that Jesus is with you. And he is for you. 
He is standing with you in the muddy water. He is beside you. You might say, no, 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 no. And Jesus will say, no, suffer it to be so for now. He goes with you into the water. He is your companion. He wraps his strong arm of righteousness around you. And as you turn, as you repent, as you reform, Jesus does not say, well, I tell you what, when you get that situation sorted out, then I'll come into the muddy waters with you. No, 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 no. We get those situations sorted out because Jesus is in the muddy waters waters with us. We don't get our act together in order to get on God's good side. We don't get on God's good side by any means other than the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is with us in the water. He's with us in the mud. And he is not only with us in a companion sense, he is for us in an advocacy sense. God is not just Emmanuel with us. He is God for us. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, if God is for us, who could be against us? Father in heaven, big sermon today, big ideas, and uh, Lord, I pray that you will take these words uh, that flow from my mouth, these ideas that uh, you give to me in, in, in study, and that you will transform them into action and, and substance in the lives of those that listen, from the teenagers to the 20-somethings to the new parents to the parents with teenagers to the parents whose children have left the home, and to those with grandparents. Father, every one of us has areas in our lives that we need to hear the word of the prophet, the camel-haired prophet, the belted prophet, the abstemious prophet, the honey-eating, locust-eating prophet. Father, we need to hear the word of reform. Turn, turn, turn. And so, Father, I pray for that. And I also pray that we will have a strong sense that as we turn, we are not closer to or further from Jesus who is with us in the muddy waters. We turn with him. He guides, he leads, he woos, he invites. But at all moments, in those dark, muddy, watery moments, Jesus doesn't have to be there. He is there with us. Father, may we never doubt for a moment that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, and that he is God for us, and that if you are for us, no one can be against us. We put our faith in you. We put our trust in you. We give you this day. We give you our lives. In the name of Jesus, let everyone say, amen.